1: Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.
2: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who's looking for the silver lining in quarantine. For example, I haven't had to make an awkward small talk with an Uber driver in two months. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Alex Kantrowitz, a senior tech reporter at BuzzFeed News. He's also the author of a recent book called Always Day One, How the Tech Titans Plan to Stay on Top Forever. It's all about how Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, and Microsoft constantly reinvent themselves because no competitive advantage lasts forever. Alex, welcome to Recode Decode.
3: Thank you, Kara. I've been a long, dedicated listener of this podcast, so I'm thrilled to <laughs> be on you. before the run ends.
2: All right, the run ends. So, Let's talk a little bit about uh, the concept of this, because uh, oddly enough, I've been writing a lot of columns in the Times about this idea that tech will now not lose any of their advantages because of the pandemic. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your look at the landscape right now for big tech, um, and, and especially in light of some of the news from Uber and some others, but at the same time from Amazon, from Congress, Um, who were nervous, Elizabeth Warren, Josh Hawley, and others. Give a broader sense of the landscape of where these top tech companies are.
3: Well, during the pandemic, they all stand to become even more powerful, which to me is unbelievable. You know, when I started writing this book, I was like, can these companies actually get more powerful than they are? It turns out the answer is yes. Um, I think it's a make or break moment for a lot of them. I mean, take Amazon, for instance, right? Amazon is now the entryway of retail into a lot of people's homes, uh, but on the other hand, it now has many people's lives—hundreds of thousands of people's lives—in its hands. And if it doesn't find a way to protect its workers while continuing to uh, deliver packages to people, it could be in some serious uh, pro- like it can make the techlash. Actually, I think look like a walk in the park compared to what would happen to it now uh, if it doesn't protect its workers. So there's great opportunity and great challenges, and I think that exists, you know, throughout all the tech giants. Facebook and Google are now key conduits of information to people in a way that they were beforehand, but now it's even more critical. Uh, but they have a greater responsibility to protect us from misinformation. You know, we don't want people taking bad medical advice and going out and killing themselves. And these companies are sort of a last uh, stand for, for people and protecting them from that type of stuff. I mean, Microsoft has an amazing opportunity, right? Satya Nadella has been investing in collaboration and cloud technology since he became the CEO. And so they've grown Azure, of course, and they've grown teams. And now we're all living on the internet. And you know when we're we're um we're collaborating at home and teams usage is just through the roof. So it's a great opportunity for Microsoft. If it can execute, it can gain share against some of the competitors that it struggled to beat. And then, of course, Apple is now going to be you know, a pretty key company in terms of our contact tracing, or I think they're calling it exposure notification, which is something that people are oh, really? more <laughs> interested in. I
2: didn't hear that one. So yeah, oh, it's, God, um, it's high
3: time for the tech giants right now. I don't think they've ever been more important than they are right now, which again, is just amazing to think about.
2: Well, what you were talking about, it's make or break. I don't think it's make or break at all. I think it's just make. It seems like that they don't, I mean, Scott Galloway on recent Pivot was talking about the idea that Amazon uh, might become, The first two trillion dollar company. Obviously, I just ordered sixty dollars worth of stuff on Amazon. I couldn't get it at my store. I couldn't. I couldn't easily get it. Um, I've been ordering a lot of Amazon stuff, and I try to get it elsewhere. And it's doesn't work as well. It doesn't work as quickly. It doesn't work as efficiently. And and they were already having issues around workers. Uh, Same thing with Google and Facebook. They were already having massive issues around, especially Google's YouTube um, and Facebook itself, were having uh, massive issues around their content moderation and what they were doing and trying to sort of push away responsibility. Now, Facebook's been trying to do this content oversight board. Google's been promising at YouTube to clean things up. And and to me, the lowest bar is health information, and so that that they're doing better. I don't know what's going to—this was behaviors that were happening before this happened.
3: That's right, but the stakes are higher right now, and I think that the change can come from two different directions. So I know on this podcast— And on pivot there's been a lot of discussion of how the government can come in and that's certainly one entry point i mean we really have a very weak regulatory body and they haven't done much against these companies but if people start dying because of them that might change there haven't been you know any lives directly lost because of what they've done Um, but the other hand is customers right we again scott has talked about how we're consumer driven uh economy and, you know, it's it's interesting. Amazon has this leadership principle, customer obsession. And for a very long time, that's meant, how can we deliver packages to people in 24 hours or less, or, you know, two days at most, with their prime subscriber? And, you know, for a long time, consumers have let them off the hook, saying that this is what customer obsession means, completely. And I do think that there might be a broadening of what customers want from Amazon. You know, is it gonna be, uh, are we gonna live in a world where, where customers are comfortable you know, getting that convenience at the cost of people's lives. And, you know, to me, the question is out. So I think you're right. I think it's likely going to be a make moment for these companies, but I don't think it's necessarily so. And I think the way they act in this situation is going to have a big bearing on where they end up in the future.
2: Well when you think about the pandemic I want to get into each company that you write about uh, specifically I want to hear your thoughts on them what their challenges are facing uh, in the next sections and everything but it, I want to focus on coronavirus right now because I think there are two pandemics going on at the same time there's the pandemic for people who can afford delivery and who are able to stay home and can work from home and still have jobs and can order and and so it's not to say that the coronavirus is a, is a mild inconvenience but in comparison to a lot of people it is you know staying home is not uh, in a comfortable home is not, is irritating perhaps, but not uh, devastating necessarily. But there are workers, and I think I had a really interesting interview recently with Nicole Hannah-Jones, which I thought was it was a very important one from my perspective, uh, which was, she was calling, you know, these are called essential workers. And so it's not just healthcare workers or uh, police and fire and, and city workers and things like that, but actually uh, delivery people, people who provide, uh, you know, food delivery, um, warehouse, stuff like that. Um, and They are now being called, of course, essential workers, except that uh, she called them sacrificial workers. This idea that nobody really cares, and in this, and they get paid maybe slightly more money. But for the most part, even, you know, with Uber struggling, and we can talk about that, um, they just announced possible massive layoffs, essentially, because their driving is down, what, 70%. Most of these businesses in this uh, gig economy have been built off the labor of other people, um, so talk a little bit about that because, again, I, I see it only as upside for them because uh, they have to actually actively, you know, you can link the government to deaths much more easily than you can link these companies to deaths.
3: Right. So, um, you know, I have a background in industrial and labor relations. That's what I studied in college, which is how I came to this book. And maybe we can talk about that a little in the next section. But here's what I think. Right now, we're all holding our breath just trying to get through this. When the dust settles, I think that, you know, I I have a hesitancy to say things will never be the same. Um, But one thing that I think might really change is we might have a labor movement uh, in this country the way that we haven't had in a long time that says, hey, you know, from a worker standpoint, hey, if you are calling us essential, how is it acceptable that the federal minimum wage is $7? So, how is it acceptable that essential workers can be treated this way and their life put at risk? So, to me, I think that right now, again, it's a crisis moment. The key thing right now is for us to just survive this thing. Um, but there's going to be political change on the other side of it.
2: You do. You do, because a lot of people feel like the, the change, for example, Facebook just paid off its, its tiny FTC fine, um, that people feel like it's not going to be a lot of uh, a lot of price for what, and they will escape uh, what was happening, which was antitrust action and all kinds of stuff like that. But we'll get into that part later. So talk a little bit about how you conceived this book, because, again, it's changed since you wrote it, presumably. But talk about the sort of the idea you were trying to get at.
3: Yeah, and I think the fundamentals are the same. Uh, To me, the main point of this book is that the way that we work and the way that we lead companies is going to change. And I believe that the tech giants have a head start. In figuring that out, which is a big part of why they've been able to lap the economy. And so this book looks at the systems that are in place inside these companies and lays them out so that they're not just the secret of the tech giants, so that everybody, you know, whether they're competing with the tech giants or working in different fields, can put them into use and we can have a more even economy and hopefully a more productive public sector as well.
2: All right. Well, to start talking about some of the things that are good about them, what are the things that they do? You know, and you can speak individually because all these companies are different in their own ways, although they have quite a lot of
3: similarities. Right, so I think um, what they're not afraid to challenge their flagship businesses. That's one of the, that's why I call it always day one. It's because for them it really is the first day, um, and this is not just a strategy thing. It's the culture that underpins this that actually is what makes the difference. So I really think that we need to start thinking about work in two different ways. Right, I think we have idea work, which is anything that's involved with creating something new. And execution work, which is everything that involves is involved in supporting that thing. And I think right now we're in the knowledge economy, quote unquote, but we spend all of our almost all of our time on execution work. People are sitting in these in jobs and they're moving numbers around spreadsheets and they're you know putting the same order and they've put in every single week. Um, and so we're filled with execution work. So I think what the tech giants have done well is they've used technology to minimize execution work to make room for idea work. And they've built systems internally to make sure that when their ideas, there are ideas coming up from their employees, that they find their way to a decision maker in a way that eliminates the walls and the barriers that exist in traditional companies. And well, that's give why some you've been
2: able. Give, give me some examples of that. That you think are particularly uh, a good example of that.
3: So uh, inside Amazon, for instance, I mean, we can we can go deep into this. It's actually so fascinating. I when I when I even before I sold the book, I took a flight out to Seattle and agreed to cat sit for a summer and said, all right, if I get the deal, I'm going to start reporting like crazy on Amazon. And if I don't, I'll spend a summer with Lady the Cat. Um, And (laughs) (laughs) and thank goodness I I ended up uh, getting the deal and was able to go report on them. And one of the things I was so interested in is, you know, how they automate work. And so I think the main example that a lot of people see is that there's they automate work in their fulfillment centers, but they also do it in the headquarters as well. And there's been a program going on for the last decade called Hands Off the Wheel that's uh, helped Amazon automate all these different functions in its retail organization. So typically, if you're a vendor manager inside Amazon, which is the name of the job, you're on the phone with Tide all day long. We need this many units in this fulfillment center at this price at this time. And Amazon realized that they were able to take uh, the data that they had and basically put that on autopilot. So they they were able to free up a lot of these vendor managers inside the company. Basically, they gave out their tasks to computers and they said, why don't you now go and, and start something else? And so many of these people moved into product manager jobs. And one example that I think is fascinating is that um, the guy who used to run pricing and promotions inside Amazon, this guy Dilip Kumar, he moved from that job, spent a couple of years studying under Bezos as his technical advisor, shadowing him uh, across every meeting that he did. And typically, when you finish this, you get to do something interesting inside Amazon. So, the first person right, did they've, it. Right.
2: They've had this at Microsoft. Yeah, Bill Gates had this. Right. This is a relatively common. Um, a lot of top executives yeah. were essentially assistants to the CEO.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. So, the technical advisor, thing to me, is not uh, the most interesting thing. And the most interesting thing is when he finished it he got to go pick something new and pricing the promotions were pretty much all but automated. So he and a few people from the retail organization said, let's try something new. And they said, all right, well, we're going to look at physical shopping and find the most annoying part of it and try to use technology to solve it. And they came up with this idea for a big vending machine that you could just sort of go punch your order in and it would deliver it to you, but realize that that would kind of still be annoying to people and not really solve anything. So they use computer vision and sensors uh, to try to build a store where you just sign in and then you go and pick whatever you want off the shelves and you can walk out. And that's what turned into Amazon Go. And when you leave it, you really feel like you're shoplifting from that store.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, but yeah. It, it works very well. I've tried to trick it many, many times. I haven't been successful. And if you read through Jeff Bezos's Alex, shareholder letters- how do you try letters, to
2: trick it? What, do you put it in your coat? Yes,
3: I have many different um, uh, methods that I've used. Let's see, so I've tried to grab a product pretty quickly. I tried to go in and out the store as fast as I can. I've been out in like 16 seconds. That hasn't worked. I've like picked up two cliff bars at the same time and thought that maybe I'd obscure the packaging. That hasn't worked. So it's, You can it's only pretty, do that
2: at Safeway, Alex, right.
3: for goodness <laughs> sake. Yeah, but I mean, it's much more fun to try to trick Amazon. Um, but we, like you can read Jeff Bezos' shareholder letters and this store is going to become a cornerstone of their physical retail strategy. And I think, you know, given the times that we're living in where we want to have as as little physical contact as possible, uh, I expect it to accelerate even more. So by taking down that execution work, making room for idea work, they end up creating the space for people, executives, important executives in their retail organization to try something new. And this is sort of a little bit of the DNA behind Amazon that allows them to be so inventive. Mm -hmm.
2: And the program was called, uh, was called What's the name of it again? I'm yeah. sorry it
3: was initially called uh, inside people in the company used to call it Project Yoda. like instead of, you know, the vendor managers doing the job, they'd let the machine use the force, which is machine Wait, learning. This, and they, then it became are, hands off the wheel
2: this concept of a- automation that they do celebrate it there. And when I went to visit, I think one and I think it was um, Kensington or part part of Seattle outside of Seattle, they had the 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 new facility. And all I could think of when I was there was, this is designed for no people. Even though Amazon was assuring me they've hired more people than ever, they're doing new f- special things and they've taken away all the tasks that are kind of rote, I guess that was you know the idea wrote, although some of the tasks remain pretty rote. It looked like a place that eventually would have no people. Um, is that a fair feeling about that or is it just the idea of making people do the things that are ideas and computers do the things that are automatable? I don't think that's a word, but.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that we won't necessarily see job loss from automation, but people who think that we're gonna get through this and necessarily grow jobs are crazy. Like, it's not gonna happen. Um, we won't be able to get through this unless we have some common sense solutions, uh, I think from a political level and from an education level. You know, because if let's say we do move into this world that I'm you know, imagining, right, which I believe is gonna happen where idea work becomes more prominent, then the education system that we have today really isn't working. Um, For the last chapter of the book, I go back to Cornell School of Industrial Labor Relations, and I go and speak to one of the professors there. And I said, what do you think is going to happen in the age of automation? And he kind of had to almost shake me and be like, you're not getting it. It's not automation that's the problem. It's that we have an education system that teaches people to memorize and spit back and to do nothing but optimize towards getting A's. And when they get into the workforce they're going to be have a really hard time being creative. So I do think that, yes, there are processes that private companies and the government can even put into place that will enable them to be more effective, but they have to go hand in hand with a policy infrastructure that enables us to get through to this future.
2: Well, that's really important. That's an important idea I want to talk about more when we get back. We're here with Alex Kanterwitz. He's the author of Always Day One, How Tech Titans Plan to Stay on Top Forever, which is a terrifying idea. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this.
0: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.
2: We're here with Alex Kantrowitz. He's a writer at BuzzFeed. He's also the author of a book called Always Day One. It's about how tech titans are going to stay on top forever. Um, We're just talking about the idea of how we have to change the uh, idea of what work is. And I think this gives us one of the things that this crisis gives us. Everyone keeps talking about we're going to get back to normal. And I'm like, no, no, this gives us an opportunity to change normal or to there isn't going to be a normal. And I think accelerate trends that were happening already. And this idea that you were talking about previously, that we, we go into an idea as a and more so that you have to be creative and entrepreneurial is critical, and we have to teach people to do this. And I think one thing that tech has done before other people is the idea of replacing itself constantly, sort of improving, improving, improving. Is that fair to workers to be doing that when they are not equipped to? to who's responsible when you're talking about that idea? Now it's a great idea to replace pricing with computers. It makes sense. It does. It makes you know. It makes sense to have a, autonomous vehicles over drivers eventually. It makes sense, you know, on a a larger scale. But in terms of a societal scale, it's problematic since we're not prepared as a society to do that.
3: That's right. Yeah. So I would say the companies that do this definitely have responsibility to retrain and not just retrain like here's a new skill, but here's a new way to think. And I, I think that if we let the government off the hook on this part and say that they don't have a huge responsibility to educate differently to reimagine the way that we educate to reimagine the way that we you know talk you know what about our social safety net like to reimagine our social safety net. If we let the public sector off the hook, we're gonna be in some serious trouble. So I do really think that there's gotta be private-public uh, you know, collaboration. I know Mark Cuban was on the show a couple weeks ago, and he mentioned that nobody in the race uh, and few people in politics actually have the technological aptitude to be able right. to legislate on these things. And that's why he's considering a run for president, right? Mm-hmm. And isn't that a shame? Right, that the two major party candidates are considered, and probably so, they, they don't have enough technological experience in the economy. Yeah, in an economy none. driven by technology. So we definitely need people that are elected representatives and then people inside the government that understand what's going to happen here. Well,
2: what does that look like? What do, what do they have to do? You, so suddenly Alice Cantor is mm-hmm. president of the United States, or not that, but something like that, where you're in charge of president of the Internet or internet head of the They create an Internet department. What what has to be done? There's been sort of, I consider the middling efforts by the uh, the Bush and the Obama administration in this area. Uh, What are the key things that have to happen?
3: Right. So if they called me up on the phone, I would say start with education. And I know I've mentioned it before, but it really is a problem where we're not teaching people to be able to think outside the box and be okay with, I know it's cliche, but to be okay with failure and to be okay with not getting an A. Um, And as long as we're producing generate generations of people who are, um, who are going to not think that way. And they're coming out of school and they're expected to hit a few buttons and that's how they're gonna make money. That's gonna be a problem. And I know, you know, it's funny, like people malign social media a lot, but actually you look at TikTok and you see all these TikToks and um, videos on Facebook and YouTube that the younger generations are producing. And it might be like the one place that's actually teaching them creativity to be able to think creativity, 100%. in a way that's not I don't, rote. I don't malign so,
2: things like that yeah, at all. I think those right. are fascinating. I mean, some of them are silly. I mean, it does focus on the silliness of people. But even today during this coronavirus, there's been so much really wonderful stuff, comedy. Any kind of creativity. It's, it's, its But that doesn't, like, get you through the day dancing on TikTok or making fun of Donald Trump or whatever. Some people will do right, a Right, which is why, would.
3: yeah, we need the public sector. We need our education system to be able to catch up here. So
2: what would that entail? What would be taught then as you are the head of the Internet Department? You're a secretary of Internet.
3: Yeah, so the people that um, I spoke with said that we need to stop uh, emphasizing uh, letter grades as much. You know, maybe take the pluses and minuses off of letter grades, which is something that Adam Grant has suggested. Um, We could also teach, you know, teach our courses differently, give a little bit more room for experimentation uh, to students and start giving less defined work. You know, if we say you have to do, you know, you know, fill out this worksheet and answer this multiple choice test, you're going to, what type of behavior are you teaching? You're teaching behavior that's ultimately, and thinking that's ultimately not going to be very helpful moving forward.
2: So what would a school look like? What would be a, an I, there's been a lot of those testing schools as you know they're in Silicon Valley, you know a lot of these uh, people in Silicon Valley's kids go to some of these schools, these maker schools or schools without walls or things like that.
3: That's a good question. I mean, I'm going to I have to tap out because, okay. you know, I think right. that um, you know, education policy is a really complicated thing and people without a lot of experience that tend to wade into them, you know, are generally victims All right. of okay. overconfidence. So,
2: but let's talk about you are a labor person because labor needs skills. So what skills do you have to have in this economy? And what what has worked where it, it rewards labor and doesn't minimize laborers?
3: Right. So I actually spoke to the World Economic Forum about this, who've studied it. And they say that the things that we need are creativity, originality, and initiative. Those are the things uh, that we need. And those are the things that the tech giants incentivize well inside their companies. So people have asked me, like, I've, I've been doing this book tour and people have said, well, how do you, how do they incentivize it? How do they inspire it? And the first thing companies need to do is give permission to people to be like this. You know, actually um, we have, there's this unfortunate view that humans are not very, uh, you know, that humans don't wanna do much, they're not creative. I think this is learned behavior, right? What we see often is people come into companies at the beginning, they're filled with ideas. Here's what we can do. Here's how we can become better. And then companies beat this behavior into them where they teach them, actually, we don't really want you to to bring ideas to us. What we really want you to do is perform this low-value task over and over again, right? And I think what the tech giants do well is they say, not only do we welcome your ideas, but this is an expectation of you to come with ideas. And then when people do come with ideas, they've got the system to make sure that their ideas are taken seriously. And I think in too many, so this is something that the the actual private sector can do, right, in too many companies, we have people that will tell their direct reports or tell other people in the company, yeah, I don't really know because it didn't come from them. And I think if we readjust our thinking to say, hey, like you're like one of Amazon's leadership principles, and I know Amazon leadership principles are this sort of complicated yeah. thing where people hold them closer than their own religions. And people who are married in Amazon, they, um, you know, they start evaluating their marriages with their coworkers <laughs> based oh, off of no. these principles they teach them their kids. But one of them that I think is actually good is think big, which is funny because it's so simple. But how many companies teach people to think small or not to think at all? Right, And when when one of the guiding values of your company is to think big, all of a sudden people take that seriously and they come in, they start with that creativity and you end up seeing some results inside the companies because of it.
2: Yeah, I've worked at many companies. I, in fact, one I used to work at, I, the reason I left, the person said, why are you leaving? And I said, think small and then think smaller. Like, that's how you think here. You know, you think, what's the smallest way you can think? But, you know, the, these a lot of these are bromides, like move fast and break things. They're thoughtless. You know, think big. You know, you see you see all their principles. You know, Netflix had a really interesting version of that in their book, which I actually thought was quite a thoughtful sort of guide to the world or their world. Um, but some of it is, is sort of, I don't know what to say. It's creepy. It's there's something off about it. But you feel like these are these give people saying them out loud is important.
3: Yeah, like I mean, I was move
2: fast and break right. things. That was the famous yeah. Facebook thing, which right, they right. kind of pulled away from. They're trying to pretend they never said it. They're doing a Trump kind of, oh, we never didn't mean it that way, and then try to get technical. They actually meant about software, but actually, it was a bigger idea around uh, at Facebook, for example.
3: Totally. Yeah, I think the sayings and the posters on the wall. Those aren't the important things. The important things are the actions. And sometimes, you know, people in a company they need this rallying cry to be able to do it. Um, But do I think it'd be more important if you if you have a company and one of your values is think big, but managers still tell people, "Don't come to me with that. You're low down on the totem pole. We don't really care what you think." That's terrible. So, um, but you know, if they don't have a mantra and they do, there are managers that are taught, "Hey, when there are people down the line that actually have ideas, can you take them seriously and bring them to us? Or even better." institutionalized systems. And I think that's, again, what the tech giants have done well. So, like, for instance, like Facebook, um, the way that they get ideas across is through this feedback culture. They're very good at listening to ideas internally, maybe not as well externally, but they have this feedback culture. And yeah, they have posters on the wall that say feedback is a gift, and maybe that's a little culty, but they also have, um, you know, day or two long uh, feedback trainings where people are taught to give and receive feedback. And actually I was able to sit into one of them uh, for the book and that was pretty interesting. I, uh, you know, wanted to dissolve into my chair for a few of the role plays, but otherwise it was fun. And <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I think what that- What was
2: the one that made you nervous? What did they
3: do, a, like a trust fall on you and then dropped you? What? Oh, thank God we didn't trust fall. Yeah. <laughs> I hate trust falls. I would have balls. tapped out on that too. Yeah, um, there was just, there was a role play And um, I forgot the exact activity, but they wanted me to go up there and tell someone they were deficient in something. And even in a completely fake scenario, I was like, there's no way I'm doing that. Like, I can't possibly do that, which is sort of this weird feeling we have before anybody gives feedback. And I think one of the problems is too many feedback cultures are just there to let people know where they stand. Like people view feedback as something that, well, you should really have people know where they stand before they get their review. So it's not a surprise. That's ridiculous. It's like totally the opposite of what a feedback culture should be about. A feedback culture should be about, you should feel comfortable bringing your ideas to anybody along the chain. And you should be feel comfortable accepting ideas and valuing ideas that are not your own. And they do that well inside Facebook. And that's why they've also been able to, you know, uh, been able to to get ahead of some of the trends that might take them out.
2: There's also a culture of everything is around Mark, there's a single person to worship. I mean, that makes it a lot easier. And it's easier in these founder cultures to do that. There's a single person, Jeff Bezos, there's a single person, not at Google anymore, but you know, there, that's been a very helpful thing is when you have the actual founders sitting there.
3: Yeah, the founder's helpful, but not necessary. So one of my favorite examples in the book, and um, it's, it's like amazingly like the second most valuable company in the world, which is Microsoft, right? Which is the second, I think, outside of Saudi Aramco. And you know, they they've gone through three leaders, Bill Gates and then Ballmer and now Inadella. And Satya Nadella came into a culture that really didn't value feedback in, at all. No, it I was people, saying the yeah. Balmer
2: one wasn't the good. Right, no, like
3: it, it valued leadership. people like standing on desks and you know Balmer and his big, you know—you can watch them on YouTube, they're kind of fun. He's big company uh, rallies. Um, when he would bring the company together, he would just uh, jump on the stage, there'd be lights, there'd be music. People inside Microsoft said he probably chugged a full honey bear before going on stage. People on YouTube think it was a different substance. Um but uh, no. the whole point was that it was him <laughs> okay. uh, talking at the company at Microsoft. So yeah. Satya came in not the founder, right? A long-time employee, and he said we're not doing this anymore. Instead, we're going to do a hackathon. And I you know hackathons again are kind of this cliche in Silicon Valley, but what it really taught the employees were was it's not about me. It's about your ideas. And everybody inside the company felt empowered to say this can make our company better. Let's get together and discuss it. And that's a big part of why Microsoft's been a much more effective company now than it was. Absolutely. Under he's Mama. a very
2: gifted leader in that regard. He's he's selfless in compared well, compared you know, you're going from like right. a complete egomaniac yep. to the opposite. I'll never forget being at an event uh with Steve Ballmer, and everybody, it was a, it was an investor event, and everyone had their computers up in a dark room, and they were all Apple computers, you know, and mm-hmm. so you saw the glowing Apple that he saw from the stage, and he, he went on a rant about it, and I thought, why aren't you, you know, and then he wouldn't let people use iPhones in the company, and this That's and that, right. and it was, I was like, why don't you ask why they all have them? Like, the question is, why do they all have them, not stop using them? And it was, it was really, I remember thinking, boy, he's a shitty leader, like, you know what I mean, like, what a bad thing to say publicly in front of your
3: employees. It right. was,
2: and, and, not, and then not to let them use it. And they all had secret iPhones, They, by the way.
3: Oh, yeah. Uh, and this, know, is, to, this is exactly it, by the way. Why do you think Microsoft missed the mobile revolution? It's because Ballmer wasn't able to comprehend They it,
2: missed the internet, right? turn, because, too. They missed, yeah, they
3: missed it. Exactly. They missed cloud until Saya came in. But he, his point was, talk at people. And when you talk at people, when you don't make room for their ideas, that's when you get into trouble. And the economy is moving so fast, right? In the 1920s, uh, company in the Fortune 500 would stay there for 70 years. Now it's 15. So if you start talking at people and are unreceptive to different ideas, don't tell your employees to, to you know, think of new things, you end up becoming Balmer. The difference between Saya is amazing, where he's been able to go in and say, okay, what do you think? And he's been doing this for the 20 years that, since he's been there, like taking young people out for dinner, even when he was sort of midway through. So it's not symbolic, it's an actual different perspective.
2: Mm -hmm. So when you think about, uh, give me one more example, say, of of Apple, what's something that they had a big transition, there's a founder Mm -hmm. who was so charismatic and so important to the company, who had a certain level of aggression, but not, you know, it was a different kind of aggression, but certainly had was was sort of a a cult around him. Talk a little bit about how Tim has done, has Tim Cook has done. They've continued to be successful, even though people give him, you know, an enormously hard time for not being Steve Jobs.
3: Yes. So, I think that Apple is in the position, this is can be controversial, but I think Apple's in the position that Microsoft was under Steve Ballmer.
2: Oh. Maybe a little interesting. bit better.
3: Because, all right, what did Ballmer do? Nicer. Nicer, definitely nicer, probably a little better, but, but fundamentally similar. Ballmer did one thing very well. He had an asset, which was Windows, and he milked that asset to the very end, to the point where like the company became, you know, it, it was a desktop operating system in the age of mobile and cloud. And eventually it just was untenable and that's why Microsoft became a joke. Um, Apple right now has an asset, which is the iPhone. And we'll see, like right now, I, I, in the book, I call them a culture of refinement versus a culture of invention. And the reason why is because they spend all their time refining the iPhone. So they make the device faster and smaller and thinner and the battery life lasts longer. And they do this by siloing their employees and having a culture of secrecy. And when you ask product managers inside, inside Apple, hey, how do you get ideas to Tim Cook? They laugh at you because it just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And so I think that you know when people saw Balmer at Microsoft, he was making a ton of money, and people were like, great leader, and Apple's making a ton of money now. And, and Apple has tried to go into new things and hasn't been very successful at it. You know, they still, they viewed Siri as an iPhone refinement. It was a fun feature. Meanwhile, the whole voice computing revolution came by. These companies, Google and, and Amazon, turned them into platforms, and for Apple, it was still a fun thing you can do on your iPhone. They lost. Apple's also tried to build a self-driving car. And because the communication isn't there, so the machine learning engineers that I spoke with inside Apple can't speak with each other. So you had people identifying faces doing face ID, and you had people identifying the road doing the self-driving car, and they couldn't talk to each other. So that, think about how much that slows down the progress. And you know, it's no surprise to me because of the culture. And that's again, the point for me in the entire book is you can really change everything once you change the culture in the process. And because Apple is stuck with this old culture of refinement, it's made very little progress on the car.
2: Mm-hmm. The AirPods are nice, though. So. The stuff matters. The AirPods are nice. No, I'm kidding. No, that was... Well,
3: yeah, and I call the AirPods, uh, their headphones for iPhone users, and the watch is a watch for iPhone users.
2: Yes, fair So one.
3: pretty good iPhone re- refinements, yep, but not brand new All right, inventions. we're
2: here with Alex Kantoros. He's the author of Always Day One, How the Tech Titans Plan to Stay on Top Forever. We're going to take another break now. We're going to talk about uh, workers and where this is going and what the what are the assets each of the Tech Titans have and what are their biggest challenges? We'll be back after this.
0: Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech.
2: We're here with Alex Kantoritz, the author of Always Day One. He's also a BuzzFeed reporter. He's been covering tech uh, and a very good uh, tech reporter. Talk to me a little bit about what's going on at Google under Sundar Pichai.
3: Yeah, Google is a fascinating example, right? So I talked a little bit about technology that can minimize execution work and make room for idea work and also uh, systems that make sure ideas get to decision makers. Inside Google, it's kind of one and the same, right? They have all these internal communication networks. They have listservs and an internal social network for memes. Uh, and um, like uh, they also use Google Drive in a fairly open way. So if you're working with another... Division, you can go in and, um, and access their, their documents and get caught up to speed fairly quickly. Um, and because of that, ideas just kind of move back like across divisions in a pretty impressive way. And that's how they've been able to build something like the Google Assistant. They gave Apple a six-year head start on the Assistant, and theirs is already better because they have this ability to collaborate. The other side of this is sometimes your employees will end up expressing views uh, and actually forming into movements that, you know, maybe management has, has a tough time dealing with. And I think that's what Google's done right now. I mean, we've seen a, a bunch of unrest inside the company. There have been protests against using drones for autonomous warfare. There's been protests against the company's handling of sexual harassment allegations and, and exit packages in that sense. And the employee base is totally activated politically. And so the question for Google is, how can Google keep the good from the collaboration that that exists for the products and mitigate some of the challenges when it comes to dissent. And I kind of think that, like, people have been trying to figure this out. To me, that's a false choice because I believe Google is stronger when they are able to collaborate on products and when they're able to give voice to people that dissent inside their companies.
2: Yeah. I- I would agree when that was happening everyone was like how could they let this happen I'm like this is how they grew these kids I was That's like right. these kids got to throw shit at the walls all day long they got to do whatever they want they got to work when they wanted they got to, there were so many like the, the original uh TGIS really they called they came and yelled at their founders and they and they had really and the founders yelled back which mm-hmm. was really I found that fascinating because you didn't really see that kind of level of uh and I thought it was actually smart because it allowed them an escape valve and actually was very canny on the parts of the founders because they these 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 people who worked for them thought they had power, but no, they didn't really. You know, the, the people who had power were Larry and Sergey, and Eric. Um, but but they gave them the notion that they had power. You know what I mean? That they oh, I got to say what I wanted to Larry Page and. Mm-hmm. Not that it mattered, right, right? They went ahead and did those terrible things around sexual harassment issues. They went ahead and they went ahead and did whatever they wanted because they had the the actual control of the company. Um, so it sort of gave a faux sense. And I think when they got surprised was when they tried to do it and got shut down. like they were sort of shocked. That there were consequences to this speaking out. It's it's a really interesting problem. So what is what is what from your perspective? How is Sundar Pichai handling it? A very different kind of personality, and I think most people who know him like him. He's very uh, uh, I don't want to use the term peaceful, but he's thoughtful. He's earnest. He's cooperative. He's I, I really like him personally. As a, uh, and I don't like a lot of them personally. Um, so how does he handle this? So you to stay on top here when this amount of dissent mm-hmm. is happening, and yet. They have to keep create, being
3: creative. Yeah, so I think Sundar is, as you said, a person that um, won't force his opinions onto other people. And that's why they've been able to be so good You know, at building products. Like for Chrome, for instance, I was trying to speak with someone who was working on Chrome. And I was like, so who did the approval? Because it was all open source. And he goes, no, no, it wasn't approval. You'd go speak with them. I'm like, so who did the approval, though? And they go, you need to think of this differently than any organization you've thought of before. And it takes a special leader to, to be able to say, I'm going to empower my employees to do that. Um, and I think that Sundar has been able to do that effectively when it comes to a process and building products standpoint. When it comes to uh, managing the dissent, I think unfortunately he's trying to find a middle ground here where he's trying to keep the collaboration going on products and tamp down some of the dissent. And I just don't think you can have it both ways. And I think it's been a real struggle for him. And in fact, his approvals ratings did decline in the Google survey uh, that they give to all employees in terms of the way that he handles the company. So I think he's been trying to have it both ways, um, but I do think he's still uh, he's still running a pretty collaborative company. And I I, I feel confident that over time, he's going to realize that the best way to do this is to open it up the way that it was before he started putting some of these controls in and let Google be Google. Because, okay, what's the worst thing that's going to happen to a company that has these dissent movements? Are they going to think twice before they pay off people accused of sexual harassment, that's probably a pretty good thing for Google. Are they going to be more thoughtful about selling their technology to military, potentially to be used autonomously to kill people? If they think more about that, that's probably good. So I think Google has everything to gain by allowing this collaborative culture to persist and everything to lose by shutting it down. The only thing is if you're a person, like we're all humans, and if you're a person who has to face that dissent, a lot of times that's uncomfortable in a way that's typically uncomfortable for people running companies. And I think Sundar will eventually realize this and and then start to say, okay, you know what, we're going to open back up some of the things that they've closed down.
2: So what is the part, the, the important part in this, when these companies are running this way and wanting to be fully dominant, and they are, I would want you to stack rank them in terms of the ones you think are going to be the most uh, successful and what they have that is going to cause that. And then what's their greatest, uh, not weakness, risk to what they're mm-hmm. doing? So start with
3: Amazon, because I yeah. think
2: they're on the top. I, they're, they're just easily on the top.
3: That's right, and and before I do it, I just want to note that the subtitle of my book is "How They Plan to Stay on Top Forever," not how they will. I really uh-huh. hope that oh, people. Oh, they're going to. Yeah. Well, I, can we you don't think know. of a
2: competitor? They don't have competitors. I, you know, they, yeah. there used to be the idea that there could be competitors. Mm-hmm. That's, I, I. I think of all the different FTC things. The looking at buying up small companies is the most interesting one of all their investigations. Not that it's going to go right. anywhere, but
3: yeah. But and what's Tim, their
2: biggest? So Amazon.
3: Amazon. I mean, biggest strength. I mean, it's funny because it's hard to think about any of this stuff not through the lens of the pandemic. But I right. mean, it's obviously changing things in a very important way. So, Amazon right now is in the middle of having this behavior built where people are starting to use that company's delivery services in the way that they, you know, even not now, lukewarm Amazon users are full throated Amazon users. Yeah. And the most difficult thing in consumer technology, and I think this is going to be a theme throughout this lightning round, but the most difficult thing is to build a a consumer behavior. And Amazon's building a consumer behavior right now where people are like, oh, I can get that on Amazon and it comes that quickly. Um, So, it's going to be very difficult for any other retail to start to claw back against it. So, it could cement itself. Yeah, even
2: people who hate them. My girlfriend hates them and now is using them actively. Hates them. It's fascinating. Because
3: what other choice do you have right now?
2: She's always like, oh, they're good. I hate them.
3: So that I so you don't
2: have to buy those. That's things. right.
3: Yeah, there are other yeah. places out there. Um, so yeah. I do think that um, that's a major opportunity. Like a, sort of a, you, if you're Amazon, you couldn't dream for a better, unfortunately, but a better business situation yeah. than having Risk. everybody locked in their house and then saying, well, we can actually get you the stuff Here you, you go. need. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the opportunity, the challenge. So I think there's two challenges to them. One is. Um, obviously protecting workers and I think that again the idea of what customer obsession means is going to expand Um, especially the more concrete they become in people's lives the more this idea of customer obsession is going to be rethought and I think the more vocal consumers are going to be the other challenge that um, few people speak about is what happens with platforms that are not amazon Uh, Ben Thompson, uh, who's a terrific tech analyst, had this great long article about it um, this week, which probably will be a week or two after this podcast goes live, talking about how Google has now made their shopping results free and how third-party merchants can now choose to build a Shopify shop and list on Google, which which is an important search venue, as we know, and say, we don't really need to go through Amazon's marketplace. We'd much rather go through something else. So yeah. this is kind of the importance Hard of having to choice, people's behavior, though. Yeah. right? Okay, yeah. not
2: you didn't say regulation. Interesting. Okay, you don't have to. I don't want you to discuss it because yeah. you didn't say it. You said these other right. competitors like well, Google is what you're talking about.
3: Yeah, and I, I do. I do want to weigh. I mean, let me weigh on on regulation real quick. Mm-hmm. I think that we just don't really have a regulatory body that's capable of breaking these companies up in the way that yeah. that's been talked about. Um, and so there have been candidates that I've talked about. Well, I want to break them up. What I'd really like to see is a platform where a candidate says, "I'm going to fund the FTC." To give them the teeth yeah. to be able to do something if they want. So that's I'll across tell you. the board I'll for I'll tell everyone.
2: you what... I'll tell you when it happens. Vice President Elizabeth Warren.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, that's she, when she would do it. She would do it. With
2: her friend Josh Hawley, for some ungodly reason. They're yeah. <laughs> no, they're not friends, but they've, they've been saying the exact
3: same things. Yeah, politics is Vice
2: President Elizabeth Warren might actually deliver on that, pro- what you're talking yeah, about.
3: Yeah, well, you've already had Joe Biden go out and say that he wants to revoke Section 230, which is like the nuclear well, I don't bomb. I think he knows what it is. That's I correct. He, yeah, again, the, the importance of having I wrote of one having... of his aides. I'm like, he right. needs to
2: not say that <laughs> the way he said it. Yeah. Um, just don't say anything. It was my mm-hmm. feeling. Okay, Google.
3: Google. Quick, lightning uh, round
2: there. Alex. Lightning round. Chit chat.
3: <laughs> Sorry. Google. Biggest
2: Related. asset, biggest. Thorn and yeah. Rose, Alex. Yeah, Thorn big, and Rose.
3: Biggest asset is search. I mean, it's funny. People think Google's been this monolithic company that invented search and stayed on top because it had search, but it's actually reinvented it so many different times throughout its history. And I go through this in the Google chapter in the book, but they started out as a website, which was accessible on Microsoft's browser. Um. So everything's going through Microsoft. And they they became a toolbar, a browser extension on Internet Explorer. And um, more than 60% of Google Search was going through Google Toolbar, which people had to install. They were, Yahoo. They were yeah, Yahoo Search. That's right. So it wasn't actually going on Google.com, which people don't realize. Then they had to build their own browser, so they built Chrome. And most of Google Search was going through that. Then, of course, they developed Android, had a big mobile operating system where Search thrived. And now I think we're entering a moment where voice computing is becoming uh, much more important in our world. And Google obviously late to the game where and I'm not going to say the A word because I have one in my house and I don't want to set it off in the middle of this discussion, uh, but Alexa. Google came late to the game. Alexa. <laughs> and we're on headphones, so I think we're okay. I think
2: they really set it off. Right,
3: right. But Google, Google came late to the game because Amazon had the head start. So if Amazon is able to get the Echoes technology and that voice assistant inside, working well, answering questions, then Google is going to be playing from behind, especially now. Right now, we're all in our homes. This is an amazing moment for people who developed voice assistants and smart speakers because now they're getting much more training data. So if Google falls behind here, it's gonna have a real hard time trying to catch Amazon they're, on they're, that.
2: But their strength continues to be searched. It's
3: Yeah, Search. it's searched. Yeah, they've done, a, they've done a poor job selling cloud services. Right now that seems to be a two company game in Amazon and Microsoft.
2: Right. Okay, Microsoft. Mm-hmm.
3: Microsoft, I mean, they are the one that I think is positioned to come out of this as strong as anyone. They're already the, the most valuable of any of these companies, but it seems like the bets uh, that they're making are really, that, that are making under Satya Nadella are really paying off. I mean, he invested really in two things. One, cloud, we're all on the internet mm-hmm. right now. Uh, cloud services has had a, a pretty impressive rise. Um, he had a natural entryway into it because Amazon didn't really have any relationship with enterprise buyers, well, Microsoft did. Mm-hmm. So Microsoft built Azure, basically made it capable of something of being something that CIOs could bring to their company and feel good about, as opposed to CIOs saying if I if we go to cloud, we're gonna get fired. And I'd talk a little bit about how that happened. And so then Azure grew pretty, pretty rapidly. Um so Microsoft is really in great position um, on both of those fronts. Uh, Trying to think of Microsoft's weaknesses. I mean, you could see something like Office sort of plummet or Windows become less relevant, which those are already on the back burner. I mean, the one thing that could happen. We talk about regulation. This might be something interesting, right? Regulators have already had success in sort of bashing Microsoft. Are they going to wake up to the fact that it's the most valuable tech company, not Amazon or Facebook, and start? No, to, they're the
2: nice ones now. Right? That's exactly, the, which is amazing. <laughs> Brad, everyone loves yeah. Brad Smith in Washington. That's right. Uh, which is really interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, Facebook.
3: Facebook's the opportunity is, again, we talk about building a consumer behavior. You can't ask for a much better situation than to have everybody locked in their homes and using Messenger and WhatsApp and the newsfeed and groups as a way to connect with people. I mean, I have to say, I'm in this one group. You know, I like to lurk inside groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in a couple mm-hmm. of interesting one. One is like fulfilled by Amazon sellers, which is just kind of sort of a nerdy passion. And the other is a group of um, doctors, or I think I'm in two doctors groups. And I'm not participating, but I'm just watching. And it's amazing, we know nothing about this disease pretty much right now. And you see them comparing treatments and actually on the fly collaborating with each other to figure out what to try. Should we prone somebody? Should we give them this drug? You know, this, how did you this handle the situation? was
2: all started on oh, Facebook, I think.
3: That's right. The coronavirus toe. Rash? toe. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, my toe. dad is a podiatrist, yeah. actually, and I've been speaking with him about Corona toe. And he said he just saw a patient with it. And I said, you did what? But it was all over video conference, <laughs> right? So probably oh, WhatsApp. Good. You know? So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, Dad, if you're listening, please stay at home. Um, and keep okay. using the WhatsApp. But see,
2: I would say, yeah. Mom, stop watching Fox News. But anyway, <laughs> that's um, right, I Read that so, column. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that column. Anyway, uh, we're not talking. No comment oh, on sure. that column right yeah, now. Yeah. Apparently, yeah.
3: involved yeah. in
2: some possible litigation. That's right. So, um, so okay. So, so their biggest challenge is: is it regulatory? Is it what?
3: I mean, Facebook's big challenge has always been trust. Right, and that's why trust. I think- nobody them, likes
2: them, nobody likes them. Yeah, people right. don't
3: like them. They say it's a similar, I don't like Amazon, but I think the sentiment is more uh, profound with oh, Facebook. Oh no, people
2: like it. My kids love Amazon. Yeah. They hate they Facebook, hate Facebook, yeah. It's fascinating. It has that
3: trust, it has that trust problem. And I think, yeah. so their efforts on misinformation you know, I know you don't like the term make or break, but they, they, ha- they get into that stratosphere for sure. They really need to be good at making sure that r- the rumors that can get people killed do not circulate. Like so far, uh, you know, it's, it's yeah, been they've the done president's a pretty press conferences that have had people trying yeah. things like ingesting wow. hydrochloroquine. But if there are other yeah. rumors that started on Facebook, it would be like very difficult for that company to explain why they, they you know, they know this is a problem. They need to be on point of, on it. And if they're not, it's going to be a tough one to explain away.
2: Great, great. Uh, You know, because now we're seeing Donald Trump as a walking, talking misinformation. So how can you blame Facebook at this point? All right. Last question. Uh, What about other companies? Do you see like one of the things that we have left out here? Like these, this is amazing. These companies are going to do so well. And I'm actually writing a column about this idea of power. What is power? How do other people get power? You know, you have Netflix, sort of, I recently called them the Amazon of entertainment, uh, showing, you know, huge gains. You see companies like Zoom, which I still think is a small company, no matter, you know, for now at least. How does anyone get their elbow in here, in this this pool filled with giant elephants, essentially? There's no room for anybody else. What does it take to get in here? Uh, You would think a pandemic might do it, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't. What does it take to get in here?
3: You begin by changing the way you work. And I know this is gonna sound biased, but it really is the case. Because I really think that it all begins with culture. It all begins with the way that you lead companies. And right now there are so many companies that are operating in this knowledge economy paradigm that was built in the 1970s that is just ineffective right now. And they ask why the tech giants are lapping them. And sure, there are some nefarious practices that need to be reined in. But having sat with these companies and and researched them and spoken with people both through the front door and then sources uh, not approved by the companies, I will say that to me, their cultures are um, what's powering them. It's really what's making Mm -hmm. them power ahead. And as long as we have their competitors operating in this old type of mentality where all the ideas come from the top and everyone's just there to execute, they're never going to knock off the tech giants. But I do think Mm -hmm. that once this... uh, knowledge starts to become democratized and uh, people inside the economy that are not them start to work this way, maybe make some experiments with automation, um, then there's a chance that we can start to beat them. And I've sort of been heartened by the response to the book. Like we've not had any bulk buys from the tech giants, but we have had bulk buys from startups and from media companies uh, and from mm-hmm. you know a, a contractor that works with the government. And this is exactly mm-hmm. the type of people that I want the book to reach. So this is a, sort of my perspective. I think that if we change culture, we change the way we work, We have a chance to elbow in and, you know, make sure that I, I, the next book I write doesn't have a subtitle about the tech giants staying on top, but, you know, how the economy became more even.
2: What do we need to get rid of from their cultures? What's the thing that's sort of toxic from your point of view?
3: The growth mentality. Yeah. The
2: growth mentality. Yeah.
3: yeah. I mean, it. I've written about yeah. this in BuzzFeed, but to me, it's amazing. I don't think it's needed. Like, if you build a good product, eventually people will come to it. Exactly. But there's this obsession with growth and the incentives. Like, the the um, way that it's weighted in people's evaluation. Did you grow your product? Did you hit your metric? To me, that's absurd. When when companies start to move towards, did you build a good product? Did you build something that's going to help society and eventually help the company? that's when you start to get into a place where the products they build and the company cultures are much healthier. But as long as they're obsessed with growth, you know, you can say, you can, once you set that incentive, your employees will find a way to meet it. And it won't yeah. necessarily always be in an above board way. And then five, six years right. later, you're answering about it in front of Congress. So chill out with the growth tech giants and think about the pro- the good stuff you can do.
2: Yeah, they uh, the lack of consequence. There, I think also I would put that together. Growth uh, happens only in a in a group of people that don't consider consequence.
3: Oh, totally agree. Uh,
2: and I think that's that's been sort of my, I bang on that drum. It's the, I call them like that they're, they're, they, they're so lack, the lack of self-reflection is really quite um, astonishing for, for over the years, just this idea that they can't possibly reflect on consequences and consider it a negative. To, they think it slows them down for sure. That's right. You know, to say just a minute. And it actually, you know what, they never pay, so why would they do it, you know? So, it's an interesting question. If they will, do you think they will change that? Do you think they they have learned that lesson or
3: not at all? I'd like to say yes. I mean, I've seen some signs that I think it might change a little bit. Um, for instance, you know I talked about this feedback culture inside Facebook. And so why, you know Facebook has been very uh, bad at considering non-techno-optimist perspectives. And I, I do think they've made a, a real effort to change their feedback culture and start adding new people into it. So I have a section called New Inputs that talks about the adversarial media buyers and the journalists and academics and even some ex-spies that they've hired into the company and to sort of inject them into this, into the way that they build products. Um, so it's a Interestingly, sign. Interestingly, they
2: haven't invited me in recently. That's right. So that's well, I, think I know Mark's on great, a hello Kara. tour yeah. with it. <laughs> Every time I talk to a different reporter, they're like, oh, I just met with Mark. I'm like, oh, I didn't. Like, yeah, I'm looking at WhatsApp. No, nothing, nothing. Although, to be fair, he wrote me once on WhatsApp and I don't use WhatsApp and so mm. I didn't see it for six months. Oh my God. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> sorry.
3: Text <laughs> next time, Mark. Come on.
2: Mystery Mr. Mr. WhatsApp. That's right. And he's like, Why weren't you looking at it? I was like, I don't use that stupid product. It's yeah. ridiculous. Well, you know, he's, anyway, he's not gonna ridiculous.
3: eye message you because he hates Apple. Like <laughs> it's amazing how oh, much he, he hates he- Apple. Yeah. He hates
2: He hates a lot of things. He has a lot of opinions about things he keeps to himself, but I suspect he is uh, bothered by it. We, of course, didn't get to Elon Musk and others, but we will in another discussion. Alex, I really appreciate it. Uh, this is a, a, a terrific book. It's really interesting. It's, it's well, well, I'm quite critical of the tech business, this is really an interesting way to think about how they're successful. And of course, it would be great if they also thought about ways they could be better uh, at doing what they do, considering their great power. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on the show. Alex's book is called Always Day One, How Tech Titans Plan to Stay on Top Forever. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Alex, where can people find you and the book online?
3: If you want to find me online, I'm pretty uh, pretty online person. So Twitter is good. My last name is my handle K A N T R O W I T Z. And then if you want the book, just. Google or use whatever search engine you want to type in. Always Day One, and it's available at all bookstores: Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Indiebound. They're not open, Alex. You can't go to a bookstore. Well, they'll deliver. There, there's honest. a lot of uh, innovation yeah, happening true. right Fair. now. And by the time this airs, I'm true. sure we'll have curbside pickup, 100%. or at least I hope.
2: Yeah. yeah. All <laughs> right. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it. If you shared it with a friend, and make sure to check out our other podcasts. Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Special thanks to Squadcasts.fm. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.